Hi, everybody. This is John Donvan, and welcome to Agree to Disagree from Intelligence Squared, where today we're getting the chance to evaluate a kind of unexpected opportunity provided by the pandemic. And that is a fresh chance to examine the SAT. Yes, the SAT, that storied and I, I suspect for many of us torturous exam for college admission or its cousin exam, the ACT. Some tough tests, yeah, for sure. Well, during the pandemic, because they didn't want to crowd kids into classrooms to take the exam and because there were challenges to making it work as an online experience, roughly three quarters of America's four-year colleges decided to drop the requirement of the SAT for the time being, meaning for the duration of the pandemic. And what that presented was something like an experiment because there have long been voices arguing that the SAT has outlived its usefulness, that it's an instrument flawed in multiple ways, including being fundamentally unfair to students from underrepresented minorities and poor backgrounds. But others have argued all along that there really are no better ways or few better ways to determine which high schoolers are most academically gifted and no better way of predicting who will do well in college. One question has been, well, what would happen to college admissions if the SAT requirement was dropped? Now, thanks to the pandemic, we're starting to get some early signs of an answer. And that is just part of what we will be getting to in the debate we've put together to start right now, where we ask the question, should the SAT be erased? My two guests represent opposing views on this very question, although I suspect they will agree very much elsewhere. But that's why we call this Agree to Disagree. Please welcome Cheryl Cashin, a professor at Georgetown Law, and Freddie DeBoer, author and academic. Both have been writing and speaking about this topic for some time, doing so publicly. And so, Cheryl and Freddie, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Welcome to Agree to Disagree. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having me. So I I just want to lay out very quickly who's on what side of this question, should the SAT be erased? So, Cheryl Cashin, you go first. Should the SAT be erased? Are you a yes or a no? With humility, I'm a yes and open to debate. Thank you very much. That's what we're going to do here. Freddie DeBoer, we we already now know the answer from that indication, but let's get it on the record on the question of should the SAT be erased? Are you a yes or a no? Uh, I'm a no because the SAT is a tool that we have that reveals larger social inequalities and trying to use getting rid of the SAT to get rid of those social inequalities is like trying to solve climate change by banning thermometers. All right. So now we know which side of the issue, that particular issue you both stand on. I want to go back to you, Cheryl Cashin. So you said a yes with humility, but setting aside the humility because you've thought and written about this topic for a long, long time. Take a few minutes to tell us why you feel I would say the SAT should no longer have a place in college admissions. Okay. So first off, I want to remind your listeners that we have savage inequality in the K-12 pipeline to selective higher education. Um, the, there's a serious unequal distribution of quality education. Um, and I, my argument is that universities should not be reifying uh, savage inequality and disadvantage, right? Um, if you look at university mission statements, almost all of them say that they exist to prop- propagate knowledge and cultivate future leaders who are going to give back to society. And the SAT doesn't predict well uh, that type of person. Uh, and in fact, it kind of negatively correlates that some of the highest SAT earners, you know, high score people, people studies suggest that they tend to be less other regarding. Meanwhile, there are m- m- much better 
tools for evaluating the ability of a applicant to do the work and graduate on time. The SAT predicts only uh, first year academic performance, not much else. It correlates heavily with the wealth and income of the family of the test taker. Um, so I think it's a tool for hoarding opportunity rather than expanding it. Meanwhile, the strongest predictor of uh, academic success over four years is cumulative high school GPA. Um, you, you can you can look at a student uh, students that have taken the most challenging classes available to them and performed well. It's a great screen for the character of grit and the willingness to forego recreation to do the work. Um, and it's much more fair than putting too much emphasis on a test that can be gamed, uh, that you can improve greatly if you have parents who can pay thousands of dollars for a private tutorial or get a, a, an accommodation to have more time, those kinds of things. So, th- and so th- this is my, my main point. All right. Thanks very much, uh, Charles Cash. And Freddie DeBoer, take, take the same question now and tell us where your thinking is on this. Well, I would say that the original sin of this conversation was embedded in John's intro, in which he suggests that the SAT uh, has, uh, you know, these racial and class dynamics that should disqualify it. But what has to be understood is, and I, I really must emphasize this, there is racial and class stratification in absolutely all of our educational data, not just the SAT, and that includes GPA. One of the very bizarre things about this conversation is that GPA is so often uh, <coughs> offered as a replacement for the SAT, as a way to simply doubling down uh, on uh, emphasizing GPA in the college process. But GPA is race and class stratified too. In fact, in some of the data sets, GPA is more heavily racially determined than the SAT. So if you're going to replace an indicator for the reason that it has race and class stratification by with another indicator that has race and class stratification, I don't know what we're doing. And in fact, cumulative high school GPA and SATs are strongly correlated. So you're actually just replicating the same racial dynamics that you say you're trying to eliminate. But it's not just SAT and GPA. It's also the ACT. It's also the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Pro- uh, Progress which is considered by many to be the gold standard of American educational testing. It's in all of the state standardized tests, uh, these race and and class uh, dynamics. It's in uh, the ancillary data uh, like attendance. Uh, It's in the academic research that's coming out of our universities. Why? Well, because we live in a system that has great racial and class inequalities. And so what the SAT is doing is not creating inequality. It's saying, hey, look, we live in a society that has all of this inequality. And as I said before, getting rid of it can't possibly remove that inequality. It just means that we're losing information about the degree of that inequality. One of the things that you're doing 
when you're eliminating the SAT at a college is you're actually uh, removing some of the information that we have about the depth of our various problems with racial inequality and socioeconomic inequality. We are just giving ourselves less information. I think giving ourselves less information can never be a way to making the scenario, to making our, our, our higher education scenario more uh, <clears throat> more just. I think that what we need to do is do the hard work of creating a racially just society, of creating a society with less socioeconomic inequality. Um, and then the indicators will catch up. But it is very much uh, a matter of getting mad at the indicator rather than getting mad at the underlying reality when we blame everything on the SAT. And I, I want to say, I'll, I'll go ahead. Can, can I interject? Um, so I, I totally agree with you, Freddie, that there's rampant systemic inequality. Um, you take any indicator of uh, so-called merit and you're going to have some correlation with inequality because that, that, that's the nature of American society, right? But the admissions process has to screen for something. And, and what I'm saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not blaming the SAT in and of itself for all these other things. I, I have argued that um, it's pastime for selective colleges, and these issues really matter most at selective colleges, to scrub their admissions process of, of anything that reifies existing disadvantage, which is going to take decades to dismantle. You know, Brown was decided in 54 and we still still haven't dismantled uh, separate and unequal schools. Right. But um, they should scrub the process of anything that reifies disadvantage um, and isn't particularly predictive of how well students were due. And the SAT is much less predictive than cumulative high school GPA. But I've also argued that we should get rid of legacy preferences. We should get rid of merit aid and go back to financial aid. We should get rid of any processes that hoard opportunity and aren't particularly predictive. Admissions officers have to have some metrics. And um, while it may be racially correlated, there are high achieving students of color, high achieving disadvantaged students across this country um, that uh, you know, prove themselves, um, do the very best they can with what they've been handed. And, and so, you know, uh, that's why I'm a big fan of paying attention to cumulative high school GPA. I cite studies in, in a, a book I wrote about this that um, look at uh, 28 selective colleges and look at, you know, what are the strongest predictors of actual success over four years and graduating. And the first, the first and most uh, reliable indicator is cumulative high school GPA. And the second is grit, stick to itness, the willingness to forego recreation to do the work, which can be screened for in a holistic process. Right there, it, uh, an admissions officer told me that it's a bit like detective work, but um, you 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 know there are ways to to screen for that character. Meanwhile, SAT and ACT scores weren't even the fourth or fifth most predictive. You know, it was more like six or seven, and it doesn't predict very much. 
Meanwhile, and this is another argument why I think the SAC should be de-emphasized or at least made optional, um, is that there's nothing joyous uh, uh, about SAT preparation. All students suffer from it. Um, and I think it'd be better to have a system where people can focus on getting the best grades they can, following their passions, following the, you know other uh, indicia of success. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan, and we are debating the question of whether we should erase the SAT. We've been talking with Cheryl Cashin, a professor of law, civil rights, and social justice at Georgetown University. She argues, yes, the SAT should be erased. Arguing the other side, Freddie DeBoer, author of The Cult of Smart, How Our Broken Education System Perpetuates Social Injustice. He's arguing, no, do not erase the test. Okay, let's get back to the debate. I do want to get to the point of the effects of the uh, experiment that we've been through nationally as a result of the pandemic, um, uh, pushing universities to uh, to drop temporarily the requirement for the SAT. I want to go to Freddie. Freddie, um, and and some of what you're what you I'd like to hear you say now is would be in response to what Cheryl's been saying, but I note that your take on the SAT is that it's no more problematic than any of the other. Uh, indicators that might be available for college admissions. But I want to know, do you think that it has an advantage? Is there a benefit? Is there something good about the SAT test in itself? Sure. I mean, I think that um, it both screens in uh, a particular kind of vulnerable population and screens out a particular kind of privileged population. So it's easy to talk about these dynamics and think about, okay, uh, privileged white kids get good SAT scores and they get in. Uh, underprivileged students of color get poor SAT scores and they get screened out. Uh, and so that's contributing to uh, inequality. But in fact, there are certain populations of students for which the situation is reversed. Um, you can find individual people, uh, such as Thomas Sowell, who uh, I don't agree with very much, but he is a black intellectual of great renown, um, who has talked about the fact that um, in his background, there were few ways that he could uh, make himself legible to uh, the institutions, the gatekeepers of American meritocracy. But for students like that, you know, poor students of color who don't go to elite private schools, who can't afford college consultants, who don't have a lot of uh, the means of access that other people have, one way that many of them have been able to crack into the elite is through um, a really, truly impressive SAT score. I think it's important to say that for the most privileged students, the SAT scores often uh, the one thing that they can't control or more realistically that their parents can't control. So uh, although there's many much anecdote about people uh, flourishing in uh, SAT prep classes, the actual research record is not very good uh, in terms of how reliable these courses are able to raise scores, particularly on the SAT reading. Um, and uh, so you have some, some students who um, are 
are born into disadvantage and who are laboring quietly away in high schools that don't have the resources to be able to give them everything that they need, who can't afford to be a fencer or to go build houses in Guatemala for a summer, you know, the holistic criteria that colleges look for. What they can do is go into that room on some Saturday morning as a, a high school junior and rip the SAT in half and say, this is my marker and get in. And the room the, oh, well, I'd like to describe the other side of that, too, which is um, part of the problem with the GPA, and there's many problems with GPA, is GPA is a indicator that can be leaned on. Okay, If you are a parent who is someone with a great deal of social capital, if you have money, if you have uh, institutional power, uh, if you are paying for your students' education, as many, many stu- people are in private high schools, um, you have the social capital to be able to lean on teachers to give your students better grades. Uh, this is a, a just sort of, sort of a known reality. Uh, there's research out there about that, about more affluent parents having the sort of uh, muscle to be able to ensure that their students get stronger GPAs. Um, oftentimes, what you have is students who are stellar on every front in their academic package, who have good GPAs, who went to the best private schools, who have um, all kinds of uh, extracurriculars that make them look more attractive. But the one thing that they can't force their way into or buy their way into is a superior SAT score. And in fact, I would argue that it's precisely those kind of students, the idiot sons of privilege, who stand to lose the most from the from uh, the SAT and they gain the most from getting rid of the SAT because it's where there's the least wiggle room. It is the closest thing we have to a consistent indicator. It's really important to remember the SAT didn't just emerge out of nowhere. There are uh, high schools where the valedictorian gets a 3.5 GPA and there are high schools where the top 20 all have better than a 4.2. There had to be some sort of a consistent standard from school to school, despite the fact that there are wide differences in average GPAs between institutions. And the SAT was that. And so I think the idea that getting rid of the SAT just straightforwardly hurts the most privileged is not actually in keeping with the data. Okay, so um, I'm going to concede something as a debater. This is against my interest. I think the strongest point Freddie has made thus far is the example of the disadvantaged kid who doesn't have the wealth to accumulate marks of distinction. I'm, I'm the mother of a, of a fencer, by the way. <laughs> but um, I, I, I and, you know, and he can distinguish himself and is willing to do, you know, work at it on the weekends or whatever. Uh, till he's blue in the face to raise the score. God bless him. All right. And so I will concede that this is the uh, point that makes it hard for me to take the yes position. When I said yes with humility, um, I think it's very easy for me to make the case for the test optional movement because it gives maximum agency to young people to decide, you know, you know, and there are going to be some people like this example, right? The harder question is whether or not, uh, like the University of California system, they should just be, you know, uh, say no to tests, test free completely. We won't even consider them. That is definitely the harder question. Um, but what I'd say is that um, I still believe that. Um, and, and, and let me let me make it clear. Um, 
And then I, I have been on admissions committees. I've been on scholarships committees as, as a, a educator for 30 years. Looking at a file is uh, holistically, which is what should be done. I think it's past time to take the learning of decades of affirmative action and, and looking holistically at a file and de-emphasizing hard numbers like GPAs and um, uh, SAT scores to try to figure out, you know, who is this human being? What, what, what are they going to bring? It, it forces us to interrogate what is merit. And there are studies out there which show that Lonnie Guineer was a pioneer of this work, that uh, so-called affirmative action candidates with their uh, tending to have lesser uh, SAT scores, even GPAs, tended to come closest to meeting the mission, the professed mission of universities, right? Um, so I, I, I still support the idea of, of it being optional or de-emphasized. I, I'm still wrestling with whether we should just throw it out completely. But, you know, I think I'd li- I, if I had to, and I'll do it for purposes of making this colorful for this debate, if I, if I have to declare a position, I would say uh, not just test optional, but test free because I want universities to be forced to be equality innovators, to be forced to do the work of developing fair um, admissions processes that really screen for, you know, the kinds of human beings that, that are going to contribute to society, that are going to add something unique and special um, to a college campus. And the, the, the worry I have about SAT scores in particular is we as a society, I think, attach way too much significance to them, right? Uh, a kid with a 1500 versus a kid with a 1350, um, you know, there are people who think that there's some kind of difference when, you know, I would prefer that they be used if used at all as, you know, a, a, a threshold above which we're, we're confident that people can do the work. Right. But what we tend to do is say um, somehow those two kids are very different. Yeah. Yeah. Like, right. But they're not, you know, yeah, um, yeah, it's all yeah. the other stuff that really matters. I mean, I, so Cheryl, Cheryl, let me just jump mm-hmm. in for a moment because of what you just said about conceding a point. Mm-hmm. If, if Intelligence Squared gave out medals, I would just give you the, the Intelligence Squared medal because we really appreciate the fact that you were willing to listen and willing to to say that this is nuanced. And we we are doing these programs in order to show people that they're that topics are complicated. And sometimes that can be brought to the surface by having a, 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 a clear disagreement at the beginning and see where it goes. But very, very few of our debaters have ever said in the middle of a debate, I'm going to concede a point. And I just want to say thank you and congratulate you for that. We really appreciate it. I, I want to take some information that you shared with us during pre-interviews to, uh, to Freddie let me um, just say, it, I still think I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> but go ahead. So, Freddie, we in in conversation when we were when we were talking with Cheryl beforehand, she shared information she thought was 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 revealing that um, in the 20, 2020 to twenty twenty one admission cycle, which was the first cycle during which many many schools, because of the pandemic, made the SAT optional. 
of uh, all of the uh, students who applied t- through school uh, through the common application, 44%, only 44% chose to submit an SAT score. That was almost half of the previous cycle. And her point being that when given the option not to do the SAT score, students are taking it, and that underrepresented students took the option more. 60% of Black, Latino, Indigenous, and Pacific Islanders did not submit compared to 39% of white and Asian. I'm just wondering what you make of that, of that, you know, that discovery. I mean, the first thing I would say is that as a matter of basic social science, I would certainly not use a global pandemic as an opportunity to draw vast uh, conclusions about systems that are going to long carry on after that, right? Like I, the- Fair enough. I mean, the, the, all manner of the things were disrupted and changed during COVID that I don't understand. I mean, look, I think part of the difficulty with this conversation is, um, I don't mean to speak for Cheryl, but I think that both of us, the, the actual existing college system would look nothing like that does now in our ideal worlds. And for the record, mm-hmm. my ideal college admissions process is not a competitive process at all. I would award slots to colleges in a, uh, through a series of weighted lotteries, which I've written about in the past, um, because I think that competitive college admissions have had immense psychic damage to uh, our adolescents. And I think that, that it has caused, um, it has not been proven to my satisfaction that it's actually helped us as a nation to to have these processes. Right now we have these processes and the question is, is, you know, how can we make them the fairest that we possibly can? And MIT uh, a few months ago announced that it was returning to a test requirement after having gone test optional. And they said in their uh, white paper in which they described this, that a a major reason for that is that they found that in fact, their entering classes became whiter and richer when they did not use the SAT. I think the empirical question of whether or not going test optional will in- increase the number of black, uh, Hispanic, uh, low income, uh, et cetera, applicants who get into these schools. I think that has to be established over the course of several years. And I will definitely look with interest at what the outcome is. I, a, a point that has not come up that I, I really want to emphasize is one of the central elements here is the question of whether you trust these elite institutions to be doing things based on an actual commitment to justice or whether you're, you're trusting them to do it based on their own self-interest. So Cheryl mentioned affirmative action. I am and has have always been a strong supporter of affirmative action. I think that it's necessary in a country that still has such an immense amount of racial injustice. But you need to understand what affirmative action actually looks like at elite institutions. Um, the best information that's available to us is that at the highest ranked institutions, affirmative action is just another way for them to get wealthy donors into their uh, system. Okay, so if you look at um, the, the top, the Ivy Leagues, the most elite schools, um, the average affirmative action uh, candidate in those schools is not a poor black kid who rose up out of the inner city with nothing. They, those spots are instead are going to uh, these uh, students who have black and Hispanic students who have the wealthiest parents who can be sure to donate the most. So these tend to be, for example, uh, the, uh, the children of Nigerian uh, immigrants who are cardiologists or uh, investment bankers or whatever. Now, we don't really actually know for sure the degree to that problem because the colleges won't open their books. 
Uh, they, the, the private universities uh, love to keep that data close to the vest because obviously they're doing things that are they don't want people to know about. And this is one of the things I, I really stress about this issue is the SAT is one of the only forms of objective data that we have about what's going on in college admissions uh, offices that uh, we can actually pry out of them. If we go uh, no test, you're just removing one of the last things that we have that tells us about objectively, according to agencies that are not under the control of the individual schools, who's getting in and why. And I think mm. that this is really important. The reason we know that there are race and socioeconomic status effects in the SAT is because the data is there to be analyzed, because it is quantitatively available. If you hmm. eliminate that, then you're just handing more more uh, leeway to these colleges and universities to take the kind of students that they want. And as so can, I interject, up, can I interject? Please? As someone who grew up in the in the university system, I do not trust these institutions. I don't believe I, that they actually have the best interests at heart of uh, of the of poor minority students. I, I, do, okay. I do want I do want to hear from you, Cheryl, but I, I just want to I just want to draw a line under what it sounds like. Freddie is saying is that there's a lot of gaming going on of on on various sides, and that the SAT itself is potentially one of the least gamed things or least gameable things in the big I, picture. I disagree with that, but th this is why I I lean really heavily toward test optional rather than test free because again I want students of all colors, races, socioeconomic status to have agency in a system that is game, you know, to, to, to make the best decision for themselves about, you know, how they want to apply to school. But I, I want to bring back a point. You, you, we, we had this, I call it the great pandemic uh, experiment and that you alluded to. Um, and, and absolutely, yes, there was a tremendous uptick in disadvantaged strivers applying to more selective schools when they did not have to submit an SAT, right? The applicant pool became more diverse at selective institutions. And there's the research for the last couple of years shows that matriculation, the actual um, um, uh, student body became more diverse, right? So, and, and I wanna underscore, we've been talking about affirmative action, um, more than likely, the Supreme Court with a case which is against Harvard and UNC, both of which for now, for the next couple of years, have elected to be test optional. Um, more than likely, this court is going to take away the tool of race consciousness from public and private universities. And I guarantee you, if that happens, uh, I suspect that being test optional is going to be, you know, a, a permanent because they are going to want the tool of, well, how do we, um, in a, a non-overt way, pursue a diverse pool? And the other thing I want to add, there's research that shows that for disadvantaged achievers, which is, you know, low-income students, first-generation students, and historically underrepresented uh, racial and ethnic minorities, those that uh, score in the top half of the SAT uh, score distribution. There's research that shows that their graduation rates improve with the quality of college they attend. So it's a good thing that the test optional movement has raised their aspirations 
um, and they're uh, applying to better resource schools. So I think systemically being optional makes the system fairer for disadvantaged kids. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. You're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm your host, John Donvan. Let's return to our debate. Cheryl and Fred, I just want to break for a second because we we actually put a poll up on Twitter. It's not scientific in any way, but it's it, we nevertheless find it interesting. And we asked um, people who follow Intelligence Squared, if you took the SAT, do you think your SAT score accurately reflected your readiness for college? And the the yes group was 27%, and the mostly yes group was 35%. Um, the no and mostly no were 37%. So something like 60% of the of the group responding was pretty pretty satisfied that the SAT indicated that they were ready for college. In other words, it's kind of a vote of confidence in the SAT over you know two to one. So, I, I Freddie, what do, what do you make of that, if anything? I, again, I know it's unscientific, but um, it's a first blush. Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I think aside from sort of like the sampling issues that you mentioned about, uh, you know, I imagine people who follow this particular program tend to be more educated and thus people who are more likely to do well on the SAT themselves. But I also think that um, – there's a sort of um, a bias towards what was the case when you were a teenager. I mean, I I, I, I think that there are some people who uh, think everyone should take the SAT because they had to go through it. And so everyone else should have to go through it, too, which I would certainly say is not uh, the most rigorous reason to want people to go through the SAT. But I, I think that there's some people for whom the SAT is seen as sort of like a dues paying kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, and that might be part of what's going on there. And, and Cheryl, more broadly, we asked the question, do you think schools should require the SAT or other standardized tests? And 85% said yes. So you you were arguing the uh, the no position against 85%. I, would, I do want to point out that in our experience in Intelligence Squared, once people are, are when, when there's a side that's heavily, heavily weighted, the opportunity to persuade and change minds rests with the side arguing against the heavily weighted side. So there's a shot you might have had here to change more minds by the arguments you're making here today. Well, let me just say this. Opportunity hoarding is in-group sanctioned processes that have the effect of excluding out-groups. I'm going to say that again. In-group sanctioned practices that have the effect of excluding out-groups. It doesn't mean that the people who are biased toward keeping keeping the SAT are bad people, but this is what they've lived with, right? It's a sanctioned process we've had for decades, um, and most people associate it with merit, right? Mm-hmm. I've tried as best I could to point out the exclusionary aspects of it, how tightly it's correlated to money and wealth, right? Um, but that's what opportunity hoarding is, and my, my fear I said I come to this with humility. My fear is that the SAT is more a tool of hoarding and exclusion than inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I try to illuminate in this debate. Yeah, one thing that didn't come up, um, so the, the, my first book called The Cult of Smart, um, a big part of the argument that I make in there is that um, – 
college has simply become too central to our system of getting people to the good life. And part of the reason why these debates about various college practices have become so intense is because um, it's now really the only sort of consistent means that we have of taking people from one socioeconomic strata to another, of, of ensuring their uh, their economic survival and that, you know, the country was healthier when it was the case where you used to be able to get a good working class job uh, and own a home, raise a family, et cetera, without a college education. And as more and more and more people feel pressure to go into the college system, all these problems take on an outsized sort of sense of panic and urgency because it's just so hard to, to thrive economically without it. And that's what the whole book is about, really. And, and my book, Place Not Race, because of those very tensions, I argue that affirmative action should give uh, a, the kind of bump up that's associated with race to people who come from disadvantaged places, which include you know, rural white people, you know, struggling people of all classes, because a lot of them are being locked out of access to the so-called good life. And yes, it very, very much tracks with college access. And and, and roughly 30% of our audience that we polled, again, um, small numbers, but um, they 30% felt that the SAT did not accurately reflect their readiness for college. I'm, we're not sure what kind of scores they got, so I'm not sure which way they went. But um, it makes me wonder, do each of you remember your SAT taking experience? Yeah, I mostly remember, I mean, I, I was not super stressed about it. I was only the fact that both my, my older sister and my older brother did well, and I had felt pressure to do well as it. But I, you know, I, um, I never went a semester of high school without failing a math or a science class and sometimes a math and a science class. So, uh, my, my, uh, college, uh, uh, horizons were pretty constrained from the beginning, unfortunately. You see all, all, I think so much advocacy is autobiographical and now I see <laughs> where, where your, your exactly. position and your love or, or tenderness for the struggling student is who can eke it out. But let me say, all right, I took the SAT twice, right? And, uh, the first time I made something like, a, this is the old days when it's just, uh, the maximum score of 1600, something like an 1150, you know, and I took a math course uh, at, at uh, University of Alabama Huntsville, where I was over between my junior and senior year, raised my math score uh, quite a bit. I think I got 1260 on the second try. No one would predict from a 1260 SAT score that I'd graduate summa cum laude in electrical engineering from Vanderbilt. And what that score did not show was I was the kind of kid who would be in the library on Friday and Saturday nights when no one else was around. But you could you could pick up that, that, that willingness to forego recreation to do the work from the whole of my file. So, my- so it is autobiographical. <laughs> Cheryl, I'd like to circle back to something you said at the very beginning that I found really, really interesting, which was that you, you said that there's data suggesting that students who score really, really high on the SAT later in life tend to be less other regarding, by which I think you're suggesting they get, they tend to be individuals who are maybe their, their lives and careers are focused on watching out for themselves and not giving a lot back and uh, certainly not going into the, uh, the giving and caring professions potentially. 
Um, and and you said that there are other that there are other ways to gauge the quality of a, of a, of an individual student. And quality is a tricky word, but I I heard you say grit. I heard you say postponing recreation. I I just would like you to talk about those other measures in this context and how do you get at those in a process? So first off, I want to make clear to your listeners, I'm not casting aspersions on people who ace the the SAT, right? Um, I was based, those statements were based on studies, one in particular, which took three years of Harvard graduates and followed them for 30 years. And um, trying to decide, figure out who was most successful in terms of uh, career satisfaction, uh, financial rewards, and giving back to the community. And that they, they found that blue-collar uh, students with uh, relatively low SAT scores came closest to being successful in life on those dimensions, Right. Um, it doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions, right? There was another study uh, that followed um, alum, l- alumni of the Univers- University of Michigan Law School, uh, and they found that uh, people with very high LSAT scores uh, um, tended to do less pro bono work this kind of thing. It doesn't mean that there aren't high, you know, high test yeah, scores. There's just, there's just something this. very, very, there's just something very intriguing about that, that tentative finding. Right. And, and your question hits the nail on the head is like, it, when it comes to selective college admissions, right? Um, what should count as merit? As, as, as Freddie said, right? And we do agree on a lot of things, right? Uh, these schools, particularly at the, at the top, like Harvard, um, they get thousands, thousands of applicants. Oh, there's, they have like a 4%, 3.5% admit rate, right? Most of the people, he said, drop 10, the lowest 10% out, could go and do the work. No one's entitled to any of these slots. So what counts as merit? You know, the universities claim that their mission statement, in their mission statements, uh, that they are trying to cultivate future leaders who advance human knowledge and give back, right? And an SAT score is not particularly indicative of that. Again, an SAT score is not, it predicts only uh, roughly how they will do in their first year um, and not much uh, else, right? So what else should we be looking at? And, you know, when, when young people come to me, it happens all the time, want to apply to law school, you know, I, I, I tell them, you, you, you need to think about what is unique and special about you and how you plan to connect your education to giving back to others, because that is what my law school very much values, right? Um, so, you know, my hope is that my school thinks more and more about the LSAT as a threshold, but what they're really trying to figure out is, you know, who's worthy of these limited slots? Who's going to give them up? The world is full of problems, terrible existential crises everywhere you look, right? Um, So a lot of universities are, are, I think, should be 
looking for other regarding people who want, who, who are committed to something greater than themselves. Are there metrics <laughs> for that? And as you know, is there a way to test for that? I, I'm assuming the answer is really no, there's no standardized test for that. But how do you discover those students out there who, as you say, have that grit, who are going to do the hard work, who are going to postpone recreation? Okay, so here's uh, what, what an admissions officer told me. He'd been a head of admissions for three decades at one of the top liberal arts schools in the country that also had like the highest percentage of first generation or and disadvantaged young people, right? And he said that often what they look for is uh, something that the young person, in addition to extremely high GPA, which, you know, I know as a person, I, I was valedictorian in my high school, right? You know, people who uh, get extremely high GPAs, they're, they're setting a standard for themselves to, to get that. So, you know, they can do the work. But the other stuff, they look for some young person who picked something up and stuck with it. It doesn't matter what it was. Eight, eight, age eight, they started playing a horn. Age 18, they're still playing it. They're still like trying to master it, right? That's example of stick to itness, right? Um, it's not just, uh, and they, you know, the authentic, you know, the authenticity can you 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 have develop an eye for it, right? Um, not that someone needs to have toiled away at one thing for ten years, but but that's an example of a of an indicator of stick to itness. All right. Really interesting. Freddie, the last question I want to take to you. So Cheryl has said she feels that um, SAT optional is is here to stay. Um, and I, I haven't heard you say whether you feel that's the case or not. Um, what, that certainly seems to be the sense out there that uh, schools are are starting to extend the deadline for the returning to the to the old ways. Um, so we'll, we'll, that's yet to be seen. But even if that's the case, an interesting phenomenon reported by the Wall Street Journal in July is that more students, uh, just in the last cycle, more students voluntarily took the SAT, sat for the SAT, than in the previous year. Um, and so, and, and the the article argues that these students are taking the SAT because they want to see how they do, and if they do well, they feel that that will give them an advantage in the process. And I was just interested in your take on that. I think that the the thing, the fact of the matter is that there's a certain set of winners, society's winners at that age already, who largely don't have to worry because they're already checking every box. And again, I, you know, part of my affection for the, for keeping the SAT stems from the possibility of those students who are not overall society's winners, but who have, who are just so bright, you know, a, a poor black student in a, uh, a crumbling Detroit school district who is able to uh, distinguish themselves uh, not because they can um, they go to a fancy private school, but who are because they're able to leverage this test as a way to sort of make themselves known to institutions. That's who I, I care about. I think that my biggest point is two things, which is again number one, um, fundamentally we have a job in front of us in tearing down the racial and socioeconomic inequalities in our society that tests like the SAT reveal. Right. In other words, fundamentally, at the end of all of this, there is the fact that we are a racially unjust nation. We are a a, a socioeconomically unequal uh, a, a nation, and the 
we can debate, and we've just had, I think, a very productive debate about what the role of tests like SATs should be within that society. But ultimately, the only way forward is to try to work for a more just society. But the second thing that I want, I want to say is I would remind everyone that universities were not founded with the goal of being uh, <clears throat> Uh, just partners uh, in society to raise up the downtrodden and, and to uh, bring them up into a better socioeconomic situation. The, you know, our universities were founded more or less to maintain a caste system where the elites are on top and to teach the children of the elites. Only over time, over the over the course of hundreds of years, has a social justice mission been grafted onto them. And so, while I think that universities can do a great deal of good in terms of changing people's socioeconomic status. I want everyone to, even if we do get rid of the SAT entirely, to maintain a sort of sense of skepticism about their admissions departments and to uh, not fall prey to the idea that they would necessarily be doing things for the best interest of the, of the worst off because these are institutions that are self-interested, that want to grow their endowments, and that want to get do better in the rankings. And so we should always maintain a healthy skepticism of their admissions practices for that reason. Right. And I, I think I, I want to concur with that. But I also want to say that I think we should we should put pressure on these institutions, a lot of which receive <clears throat> incredible subsidies from, you know, from 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 government. Right. To be equality innovators. Right. Um, and, and I think going test optional or test free is more putting a thumb on the scale more for more opportunity and less hoarding, hoarding of opportunity. In addition to, again, I don't want to, I don't want to say that that's going to solve everything. I do think we need to, to, you know, as I said before, um, more financial aid, less merit aid, a no loan policy. I haven't mentioned that, but if you, if you're truly committed as an, as an elite institution to having people, uh, who are disadvantaged or first generation or, 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 you know, coming from a struggling background, you need a no loan policy, right? We, we, we have circled back to where this conversation started, which makes it a very good place to wrap up. Um, I want to thank both of you for, for, for taking part in this conversation, for uh, actually listening to one another with such open minds and, and respect. I certainly learned a lot and I'm sure that our listeners did. And I think that this is a topic that potentially we could revisit in a year or two with you to see where things have gone. But I want to thank both of you, Cheryl Cashin and Freddie DeBoer for joining us on this episode of Agree to Disagree. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm John Donvan. We will see you next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared, made possible by a generous grant from the Laura and Gary Lauder Venture Philanthropy Fund. As a nonprofit, our work to combat extreme polarization through civil and respectful debate is generously funded by listeners like you, the Rosencrantz Foundation, and Friends of Intelligence Squared. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman, Clea Connor is CEO, David Ariosto is head of editorial. Julia Melfi, Shea O'Mara, and Marlette Sandoval are our producers. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. We'll see you next time.